0: Greetings to our global neighbors and all the ships at sea. From coast to coast, border to border, this is Message Traffic from Washington, D.C., presented by the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs.
1: Earlier this year, President Biden, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced a new trilateral security partnership called AUKUS. As part of that partnership, the Australian government backed out of a $90 billion deal to manufacture diesel-electric propulsion submarines with the French government and shipbuilders, instead choosing to go with nuclear propulsion submarines built by U.S. companies. This decision caused a rift between Washington, Paris, and Canberra. It also called into question the strength of NATO friendships and highlighted the importance of strategic alliance in the South Pacific. In this episode, the center's Principal Director, Justin Russell, will be discussing the AUKUS alliance with Ambassador James Caruso, former Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Canberra, Australia. Following a 14-year career in international banking and finance, ambassador caruso joined the u.s department of state in 1995. since then he has served in a variety of diplomatic economic and commercial roles in the dominican republic south africa australia thailand and cyprus including acting as a member of the u.s teams negotiating free trade agreements in australia and thailand prior to his assignment in australia ambassador caruso served as Director of the State Department Office responsible for relations in the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, Singapore, and East Timor. Here is our interview.
0: Uh, Ambassador uh, James Caruso, thank you for joining us here on Message Traffic.
2: Great to be with you, Justin.
0: So uh, Jim, let, let's start off with the basics of this. Can you kind of give us a snapshot of the situation and the tension that was caused with the invocation of the AUKUS deal? Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and, and the French and how they got involved and where we're at right now with that situation.
2: Sure. Um, as always, there's a lot of prehistory and politics and all sorts of things that went on. When this deal was first negotiated and signed, and what's happened in the world, uh, especially vis a vis China, since. So, if we go back to when all this was happening, this was uh, 2015, uh, early 2016. And there was no doubt the Australians needed to replace their Collins class submarines, which were getting old, needed more and more work. So, they were looking around for something else to replace them with. Um, the administration, the prime ministership of Tony Abbott, was looking at Japanese made subs, mm-hmm. or Japanese design, I should say. And the US encouraged that because the idea was to uh, bring Japan and Australia closer together on security issues. Um, so that would look like a done deal, but it was not signed. And then Tony Abbott uh, lost the prime ministership in an internal Liberal Party, as they called it, a spill, and he's replaced by Malcolm Turnbull. Turnbull uh, threw the deal open again. The the other thing you should keep in mind is uh, nuclear in Australia, despite Australia being the largest exporter of uranium in the world and having one of the most stable geologies in the world, is absolutely, uh, we'll call it uh, pandemic prone towards uh, anything nuclear. They have one nuclear reactor in the whole country for making medical isotopes. That's it. So the idea was they had no infrastructure for nuclear. They didn't want nuclear. They were going to go for diesel electric. So the Japanese make a diesel electric sub. The Germans make one. The French don't make one. But for reasons that I can't really share, because partially because I'm not sure entirely what happened, the Australians went for a nuclear sub designed by the French and asked for it to be retrofitted into a diesel electric sub. Well, if you ever worked on a car and you wanted to replace the engine, you know that's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> so as
0: somebody, uh, as, as somebody who has owned a 1978 Mercedes 240D that had a gas engine replaced to the diesel, I understand where you're coming from.
2: <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so, It was, uh, yeah, it was a good uh, geopolitical move perhaps to bring the French who of course have keen interest in the Pacific closer into the uh, orbit, the security orbit of Australia. But this was going to be a challenging prospect to do this build. They're also going to do it in Australia. They're not going to build these subs in in France where they have actually built them, you know? Right. Um, Also Australia hasn't built this sort of thing ever. So a lot of training was going to take place, a lot of new design was going to take place, and uh, no great surprise, the project fell well behind schedule and well over budget. Meanwhile, China, in 2015, there was still hope that China was going to become a full partner in the global order, which had made, was making them more and more rich. Uh, things were stable. Yes, there was a little concern about their activity in the South China Sea, and that was one reason uh, Australia wanted these subs. But basically, you know, China, Australia's largest export market by far. No one wanted to upset China. So having non-nuclear powered subs was a good move to accomplish that, even while upgrading the the subs. Right. But what's happened since then? Well, we have uh, Uyghurs. We have Hong Kong. We have overflights of Taiwan. We have... Uh, uh, barriers to Australian exports to to China. Uh, we have a more aggressive "wolf warrior," as you may be familiar with that term in China. Yes, yeah. Uh, Chinese policy. So suddenly, fairly noisy diesel electric subs that don't have the range of nuclear sub, they weren't going to be as effective in in meeting this challenge. Um, and as I mentioned, the the French option was looking more and more expensive, and with an extended timeline for delivery. Right.
0: Okay. So, uh, so Jim, let's let's go back to the point that you, that you brought up regarding the anti-nuclear aspect of Australia. This goes back to the '70s. It's been pretty much looked at as a forbidden fruit, but when when the current prime minister, uh, When when Scott Morrison came and and kind of announced it was joining AUKUS, the Australian-UK-U.S. alliance, uh, and they did announce the the nuclear sub deal, there are some that I talked to in the defense analysis community that says that uh, Morrison may have been pressured and had external pressures coming to him from both Washington and London to have him swallow this bitter little pill that is nuclear-powered defense equipment in the Australian Defense Forces. Is there any truth to that? Do you see any of that possible?
2: I think it's unlikely that the U.S. would push hard on this. This was, I believe, the U.S. reacting to a request. Um, And this was cooked up, as far as I understand. I, I wasn't there. Right. Uh, my understanding is this was cooked up first between Prime Minister Johnson and Prime Minister Morrison, who sort of together went to the U.S. and say, how about this deal? Um, interesting. Now, for Morrison, this is a was a political risk to introduce nuclear powered uh, anything into Australia. And it's very interesting to me that it's met with almost no opposition. Really?
0: Really, as anti-nuclear as the Australian electorate has been, this deal uh, has not met a lot of opposition in the public?
2: It's met opposition for why are we uh, being so mean to the French? Uh, Do we really want to take on the Chinese this way? Is this a good idea? But interestingly, and we don't have the skills domestically to build and maintain nuclear,
0: right. so
2: this is a good idea. But the nuclear question itself on the subs somehow seems to be pushed to the back of the line of concerns for meeting the press. Interesting. So it, it, it seems that the Australian
0: public has kind of reserved itself that nuclear is going to have to be part of the Australian defense arsenal. But when we look at the bigger picture of this, Um, let's talk about the AUKUS agreement itself was, was there a lot of support in Australia for a trilateral agreement between already established allies, that being the US and the UK with Australia? Uh, and how does that offset or offshoot the ANZUS agreements that are currently in
2: play? Okay, well first just to clarify, this is only nuclear propulsion. No other nuclear devices or anything are involved. Correct. In that, Correct. Just to be clear. Yeah. Um okay, so you know, Australia is still in has a special relationship with the UK. Um it was founded by the British government. Uh, it was effectively a colony until World War One self-governing, and even after that, uh, to this day, the head of state is Her Majesty the Queen. So it's still very British in some ways, and they always look to Britain for their security right up until World War II when they look to us. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's always perfectly natural for them to look to their former key ally and protector and then their post-World War II key ally and protector uh, to form uh, a stronger defense against what they see as a new threat, okay, which, which everyone hesitates to say, but everyone knows is China. Um, yeah, is it is it a matter
0: of that? You know, because again, you know, we 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 know, we've known about the ancestry, the the America Australia New Zealand treaty, but. We've always looked at that as kind of being the cornerstone of the strategic partnership in the South Pacific. Does the AUKUS agreement somehow enhance it? Does it take away from that? Or how does that fit into the puzzle?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't think people know yet. If you're a, a Kiwi, you're sort of wondering where this leaves you, especially since New Zealand maintains a very strict no nuclear policy, including any visits by nuclear-powered vessels. Right, uh, which is one reason very, very few U.S. vessels, military vessels, have paid a call in New Zealand in the past years. So the implication is these Australian subs will not call in New Zealand.
0: Does does this put the ANZUS agreement in jeopardy, perhaps?
2: I don't think so, because uh, it's still both in the U.S. and U.K. interest, as well as New Zealand's interest, to work together. Uh, New Zealand's military is very small, but has some key capabilities, especially in in islands uh, to the north and west of New Zealand. So they they still matter. There's no reason to push them away. But it's going to have to deal with this question of how you deal with allied military vessels that they won't allow into their ports.
0: Interesting. From a strategic standpoint, we when we look at this deal with Australia, uh, Australia has always I, I, had a strong trade relationship, not only with the U.S., but increasingly over the past, I'd say, decade, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, that China has been an increasingly larger trading partner with the Aussies. Um, With the recent tensions between Canberra and Beijing, uh, does the trade aspect, the trade relationship between the Aussies and the Chinese uh, give the Aussies an advantage or uh, give them some sort of strategic foresight into making this deal or – are the Aussies realizing that the Chinese are getting too aggressive in the South China Sea that we're going to have to look to the, the further partner, that being the U.S.?
2: Um, let, let me clarify one more thing. Okay. New Zealand remains a member of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing community. Correct. So Correct. in some ways, you can almost say AUKUS is a furtherance of that agreement of the okay. Five Eyes. Yeah, it, it's not a perfect parallel, but it's, one way to look at this: different levels of cooperation. That would you and, call? Would you call it more regionally focused? That's an interesting question. Um, clearly, ANZUS was mostly focused on that region until Afghanistan and Iraq, when right. prevailed upon those allies to help us out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But it was always that region, by by and large. Uh, now, to the economic relationship between China and Australia. Uh, as China grew uh, over the past decade and more, basically since they joined the World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. they have needed to import so much raw commodities for their industrial enterprise. Nickel, iron ore, coal, gas, uh, and a host of other things. And who can supply those at good prices and reliably? Australia. And we have, as a result, uh, China, by far the largest trading partner with Australia because of the amount they import of those commodities, especially iron ore lately. Now, as they grew richer, they also started importing things like Australian wine. Australian rock lobster, which is like our lobster, but not as good. (laughs) I said said that for you, Justin. You
0: did good job on that, Jim. Thank you for the hat tip to the New England. (laughs)
2: Um, But they imported tons of that. Australian seafood, um, education. Many, many mainland Chinese were attending university in Australia and essentially subsidizing Australian education at the tertiary level as a result. This got to the point where many believe that China said, Australia is now dependent upon us economically, at least for key sectors. And therefore we can squeeze them on political issues. And you could argue things like um, the sale of the, or the leasing of the port of Darwin to a Chinese entity, was that done because Australia didn't want to take issue with a Chinese transaction for fear of hurting their trade relationship? Don't know, and it's a possibility. So, so it, it was just—it's such a important trading partner for Australia. Um, but when China started prohibiting the export of barley, wine, um, rock lobster, and uh, coal lately. The offer, obviously, was to squeeze Australia to do China's bidding, to politically come around. And Australia's refused. Australia's refusal, I would argue, increased the pressure from China, making more and more bellicose remarks. Australia's response is, okay, we're gonna have to up- upgrade our subs so that that
0: leads me to another question is, you know, w- As I looked at this deal, the Australians have had the luxury because of the fact that they've had uh, diesel electric powered equipment uh, that doesn't have the range, let's see, or the endurance of a nuclear powered propulsion system. Uh, They've been able to kind of go out to their outer limits and just basically sit off of Perth monitor the situation and maintain national defense in kind of a quiet way this seems to me to be a uh, a much more um outwardly focused are, are are we expecting with the addition of nuclear powered sub or nuclear propulsion in their sub fleet and, and possibly even extending into their naval fleet does this is this a show that Australia realizes that they're going to have to be a much more uh, strategic partner in the South China Sea, partially because of the uh, the readiness situations that might be uh, that, the, that the U.S. and the U.K. defense forces might have to be dealing with? Is this a is this a expansion of their world, let's say, in that region?
2: Well, I think basically they felt they were being outclassed by a China that's massively increasing the size and capability of their armed forces, and they need some sort of response. Part of that is increasing interoperability and cooperation with the U.S. and U.K., and and therefore that means upgrading their equipment to better operate with those allies.
0: Okay. Okay, let's look at this also from the Atlantic side. Uh, Jim, we we saw the fallout of the AUKUS deal and the nuclear sub-announcement where, for the first time in history, uh, the French government recalled its ambassador to the US back to Paris. It also recalled its ambassador from Canberra back to Paris. we saw some very harsh language coming out of the French government. Uh, is the French government justified in their protest? We know that this is a 66 billion dollar deal that went south, but the French aren't exactly known for their massive sub building calls. Is is, the, is is there legitimacy to the argument that the French are making, or is this just um, uh, you know rotten fruit? attitudes by the government
2: well it, it is a fact that the australians unilaterally unilaterally abrogated the contract so on okay. receiving that end of that you're going to be unhappy um the french say they had no idea this was coming I, that may be true but they certainly knew the project was in trouble as far as disagreements on uh, on delivery and design and, and that sort of thing. Um, If you're a cynic, you could note that there are elections in France next year, right? And that uh, President Macron is quite keen on creating an independent European military force, and maybe this would be helpful in generating momentum towards that end.
0: Interesting. Um, Interesting.
2: So, uh, I'd you know I I. yeah, this question of who's going to tell the French the bad news <laughs> i had this image of them sitting around the cabinet table and everyone thinks the other guy's going to do it <laughs> is it, does does this
0: strengthen president macron's position as far as being a, a a truly uh new world leader in europe does this hurt his positioning in europe and possibly in France do you think
2: It's, it's hard to say, you know, we have a German election coming up and a lot will depend on who that new leader. I Actually, the election took place. Right. To Trying to form a coalition. So who will the new leader be? How do they view this whole effort? Uh, look, there, there's no doubt that after the Trump administration, uh, the ability to just depend on the U.S. and trust in the U.S. is greatly, greatly diminished. So then if you're a European leader, you say, all right, what do we do about that? Um, And the Europeans are a long way from a unified command. Their structure is still based in NATO. Are they going to create a second. So they have the national command structure, the NATO structure. They're going to create a third structure with Europeans. I I don't know. And I'm no Europeanist, so I I can't guess. Um, But I think there is some momentum towards a greater European military independence of some sort.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Going back to the Pacific side, if we can, for a second, uh, a couple of questions. Does does this begin a, a new regional cooling of, of relations uh, between Beijing, Washington, Canberra, London, and even some of the other Asia-Pac allies? such as Japan, South Korea. Does 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 this deal light a fuse I guess in the region where the Chinese are going to feel that they're going to have to respond somehow or is this a shot across the bow to say back off a little bit let's start talking money here.
2: Well, before AUKUS we had the Quad, right? Right. So that was an iteration which while not explicitly about defense clearly has a important defense component. Uh, you have the need to bring ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, as a grouping, along with whatever this new architecture is going to look like. Uh, The ASEAN states do not want, do never want to have to choose between the US slash the West and China. Both are important. They don't want to be beholden to either. Uh, But of course, it's their territories that are being Uh, targeted by the Chinese in the South China Sea. So they want us all to just get along uh, or even better, we manage things without uh, causing any trouble for them. Uh, So they're playing this balancing act. Um, So the question is, what what is India going to do? India, of course, is the big potential balancer just from the sheer size of the country. Right. They... You may remember they were leaders of the non-aligned movement back in the day.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And yet now they're inching closer and closer to some sort of, if not alliance, close coordination with the U.S. and their former colonial friends uh, elsewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But it, it, it's a lot going on. And why did this happen? Well, China's you know being aggressive on the China-India border. So the question I have for you, Justin, is why is China being so aggressive on so many fronts?
0: Well, I, I mean, we, I mean, looking at it objectively, one could say that they're starting. You know, President Xi has never been one to show vulnerability, and the recent reports that we're seeing coming out of Beijing between economic issues, uh, strategic miscue issues regarding the situation, possibly in Taiwan. I think that uh, they were looking a little bit vulnerable in the eyes of the international community over the past couple of years. I think that this is a a reaction by Beijing to say, there's no vulnerability here. There's no there, there. We are as strong as ever. We continue to be in their eyes. The, you know, we being the Chinese tend to show that, yeah, we are the big swinging dog, not only in Asia pack, but we are still the big dog in the global community, both economically, both uh, militarily, strategically. You have to deal with us. I I, I don't know. Does that make sense to you, uh, Jim?
2: Well, there's no doubt the whole world has to deal with China. They are not the Soviet Union. They are an economic powerhouse, increasingly a military powerhouse. Um, they're very capable. Um, But it's fascinating to me that as they become more aggressive in all these different fronts, and it's forcing countries like India and Japan and Australia uh, to basically say, all right, we need to band together to push back. Who's banding with China? Well, you got Cambodia, I guess. North Korea. (laughs) Even they, you know, North Korea and China don't get along very well a lot of the time. (laughs) So it, they don't have a lot of friends. They have a lot of potential clients. They have important right. trade relationships. Right. But but no one wants to sign a treaty with China that beholds them to Chinese uh, defense establishment.
0: Is that is that a miscue by by uh, President Xi that you know the almost uh, mafia like agreements that China has been putting in? Where I mean we're seeing it in places like Africa, where they'll go in and they'll spend billions of dollars on building infrastructure, and then all of a sudden turn around saying, okay, the nodes do. Well, we can't pay that. The Chinese comes in and say, okay, now it's ours, and now you're going to be beholden to us. Is is that strong arm tactic? uh, Are are they overplaying their hand in this
2: in Beijing? I think think they have. Uh, You see countries being much more reluctant to just sign on the bottom line. And the, the Sri Lankan port they built for Sri Lanka very, very quickly turned into a Chinese port. Right. Uh, now, that said, outside of uh, Colombo, they're building a massive uh, commercial industrial port, brand new. Uh, well, the Sri Lanka is its own weird place as far as this goes. <laughs> but but the but, but, but countries in general are saying, OK, when the deal is too good to be true, it probably is. Right. Right. Um, but it sure is easy, you know, I, for years I dealt with trying to get our export import bank and other finance development agencies to help finance infrastructure overseas. But we have environmental impact statements and getting through Congress and limits on what can be done. And the Chinese just say, if you want it, we'll finance it, we'll build it. And all you have to do is pay us back, okay? <laughs>
0: yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds very much about right.
2: I, it, it's a great <laughs>
0: deal. It, it's it it it's like you said. If it's too good to be true, it probably is.
2: Right, but if you're a politician, um, you just want the dam built.
0: It's that that's true. We'll take the infrastructure, and we'll worry about paying it later on. Okay. Hey,
2: uh, Jim, um,
0: we've got a few minutes left, and and I, I want to pick your brain on, uh, particularly going back to the uh, AUKUS deal. Um, we we've been hearing words. Uh, or or at least there's been some inkling that Scott Morrison might be, uh, in political trouble that COVID and the, the AUKUS deal might have put him in a little bit of a, 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 of a awkward position politically. Is there any truth to that? And can, can he survive, uh, everything from the, the COVID situation to the AUKUS and the, and the nuclear subs coming in. How in danger is he of an election?
2: You know, Scott Morrison has escaped uh, massive fires during which he was in Hawaii on vacation. Uh, he's escaped some other problems about his attorney general. Uh, he has uh, at least nine lives. So, <laughs> so I, I I think... Yeah, I would never count him out. He's a very savvy politician, first of all. Second of all, the labor opposition just has not seemed to be able to gain traction on these issues. Um, thirdly, while he took a lot of heat for apparently mishandling COVID early on, now that over 70% of the population has been vaccinated, uh, places are coming out of lockdown, they're starting to open borders slowly, slowly. Uh, I think he's managing the muddle through yet again. Um, so, yeah, you know Australian politics is a a knife fight. So uh, <laughs> but he's got a knife.
0: <laughs> so you, you know a, a friend of mine who is in Australian politics, he, he once told me he says, you know in 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 Washington, you say if if you want a friend in in politics, get a dog.' His comment to me was in Canberra, we can't even find dogs that'll be that loyal. So. Sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> the, uh, the the final question I have for you, Jim, and, and again, looking forward, is we we've always understood the the critical relationship between the Australians and and the in the US. Um moving forward, particularly with the aggressive nature that we're seeing in China. How important is the relationship with Canberra going forward, and does that somehow increase in the next 10 20 years?
2: Well, there are a couple of things. First, I don't think it was an accident that China chose Australia to try and make an example of how they can apply economic pressure. If they could get Australia our old close ally to veer off from policies in the region, uh, what would all the other countries in the region say and do? And so the U.S. the U.S. won't stand behind you, right? Uh, so the U.S., uh, to our credit, has stood behind China. You may remember, I think it was, uh, I can't remember which, uh, Secretary Biden said, we will be behind you 100% during this economic uh, coercion effort. Uh, So that's one. Two, just geographically, we have important facilities in Australia. Um, We're adding to them up in Darwin. Uh, This nuclear sub deal may include some sort of more frequent uh, calling on Australian ports, potentially even uh, basing some subs there until the new subs are built. So I would say this is just driving further integration
0: uh ambassador jim caruso I, I cannot tell you how much we really appreciate you uh joining us here and uh on behalf of the uh board and the staff at the new york center for foreign policy affairs we really appreciate your insight in joining us on this webcast
2: it's my pleasure good talking to both of you
0: thank you very much jim
2: All right, see you next time
0: For more information on the subject you just heard about or any of our articles, reports, or events, log on to nycfpa.org. Also, please consider subscribing to Message Traffic on your favorite podcast service like Apple, Google, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. You can also follow us on social media by searching for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For questions regarding the Center, or just to let us know what you were thinking, you can email us at info at On behalf of the board and staff of the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs, thank you for listening.